Okay. So, um, Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. Um, it's an interesting holiday, Easter, which I don't know much about because I was raised in the Jewish tradition and I didn't realize that um, there's a lot of weave of other traditions that Easter came out of, which is kind of fascinating, meaning I've been learning some things over the past few days as I've been reading about Easter and considering what, how we would relate to Easter from a Buddhist perspective. <clears throat> and so um, I'm going to give you a little background about Easter and about some of the other traditions. And sometimes we've gotten some feedback that I want to acknowledge that sometimes people say I'm a little too intellectual. And uh, I can be and like to be sometimes. So, um, But partly I want to give context for what's being talked about because it's all right here, right now, even though I'm talking about something that may be, you know, 1,300 years old or 2,600 years old or 5,000 years ago, there's a paradox in practice, which is all of reality is right here. And so to start to be aware of that, sometimes I'll bring in things that seem very um, tangential to Buddhism, but it's because Buddhism's about being here now and on a certain level of practice, everything is here now. <clears throat> and I won't say much more about that, but I'm trying to make my case for my, for, uh, I'm trying to give some context for people who sometimes think, oh, it's too intellectual or I, I can't make sense out of it. You don't have to make sense out of it. That's one of the beautiful things about Buddhism. If you stay present with your experience, that's where all of Buddhism is anyways. And so you don't have to even like what I'm saying you can still practice what, with whatever's true. And that is where the Dharma is. <clears throat> so Easter, here's a few things I learned, that it's also called Pash, or Resurrection, right? And it's a festival celebrating Christ's um, resurrection after his crucifixion. And it's preceded by uh, Lent, which is a period of fasting, prayer, and penitence, right? So it's preceded by this time of intense practice and then celebration. And that's a very common archetypal motif in religions, that there is practice, there's discipline, there's pray prayer or meditation, and then there is uh, celebration or awakening or freedom that can come through the discipline that we're engaged in. <clears throat> and so I was considering Easter as an archetypal holiday. Um, and it, it, I learned some more about it. It's, you know, it doesn't actually fall on a fixed date in the Gregorian calendars. It's the, rather the dates determined on the lunar-solar 
calendar. I never even heard the word lunar solar. It's one word. Lunar means the calendar that is based on the um, the moon, really, and it's it's linked to the Jewish calendar, which of course Christ was Jewish, which a lot of people forget. I think that that was part of his lineage, and so um, I looked up. Um, a few different things. One, one place said Easter is linked to the Jewish Passover, which is a very normal or regular uh, annual Jewish holiday, Passover. Um, and Passover had to do with the Jewish um, um, experience of celebrating their freedom from slavery. And so you're hearing a little bit the arc, part of the archetypal components of um, what we call Easter is about a certain kind of freedom that is possible even after difficulty, right? Christ died on the cross and then was resurrected, right? Something magical happenings happened, something amazing happened for him after he was dead meaning he was resurrected. <clears throat> and so, and it's very closely related to um, the Jewish tradition, the Passover. It's very much the same word. Easter is called Pash, when Passover is, there's a Jewish word. Let's see if I can remember it. Pesach. Pesach, thank you, that's it. <laughs> And, and they're, they're, they're like this, those two words, right? They're the same word. Somebody, somewhere in here, I have something more about that I did, where it said, in many languages, they are the same word, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Identical or similar, right? In many position at the same time a calendar, and in many languages, words for Easter and Passover are identical or similar. And so you hear this kind of, the closeness of reality of human beings who for, can be very separate and against one another, and then you hear, oh, wait a second, there's something in the beginning wasn't so separate, was quite unified. And then even prior to the Christian and Jewish, there's the pagan celebration of this time of year, which has to do with the spring goddess of fertility. Isn't that, I think that's a great part of, Chris, of Easter. Christmas too, of course. But, <laughs> no, but I, and I, so I looked this up because I'd never heard, it's, it's actually, and if somebody knows German, maybe they would help me, but it's, it's estere, or, or astara, is the German word for this, for this um, feminine goddess um, whose name is the namesake for Easter. At least it's said in one of the places I was reading. And um, that she was very popular. This is from uh, a website I'd never been to before called God Checker. <laughs> this was God Checker. So I'm quoting them. Don't blame me about what they say, but, but they say a Germanic, Germanic goddess, Estade, was popular with, in the pagan world 
uh, who worshipped her under the na that name and kicked off the whole Easter business without a Jesus in sight. Right? This is pre-Jesus, pre-Jewish, pre-Christian, pre-Jesus. And, and they said, if you ever wondered what eggs and bunnies have to do with crucifixion and resurrection, the answer is absolutely nothing. Estade, the goddess, her sacred animal was a rabbit, right? An obvious symbol of fertility, right? And the egg is her symbol of fertile purity, fertile purity. And, right, and so Easter egg hunts are actually packed with symbolic meanings of rebirth and renewal. And that's one of the beautiful parts of what Easter is about. It's about, it's the resurrection. It's about renewal. It's about something lives on even when there's what we usually consider the end, right, or death. And so, so it's a great um, question for us to consider what what is it, what in the archetypal understanding of Easter um, is there for us in Buddhism? Or is, is there, is in Easter for us as Buddhists? That's a better way to say it. Um, and here, here's a few thoughts I have. First of all, one of the things that's seen in, in the uh, life and death of Jesus is his total devotion and dedication to God. And however you understand God, we could use the word God, we could say spirit, um, but he dies for what he believes in and what he understands to be true. And so that is part of the radicalness of Buddhist practice is not that you have to die for what you believe in, but that you live for what you believe in, or what you value, or what you care about, or what's meaningful for you. And that starts to determine your life, your belief in the Dharma, and a very normal translation of the word Dharma is truth. And so the understanding of the truth, the belief in the truth, and then living one's truth as best one can is a beautiful part of practice. And the um, death is symbolic, both literally and metaphorically, for letting go, right? Because I can assure you of one thing, whatever I say, you can question all of it, it's sometimes I'm right or wrong, or I have my opinions, but you're not going to take anything with you when you die. You could trust me on this. You won't be taking your iPhone. I, you know, really. They may bury it with you, but you won't be taking it. Or your computer, or your whatever it is, or your job, or, or your, you know, clothes, or your automobile. Oh, 
Well, 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 well. Um, not now, not now. I'll give you some time in a little bit to talk, but let me, let me finish talking. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and so, so um, Christ dies for his, his beliefs and his devotion and his dedicated to God, to reality, to the truth. And I'm not saying, oh, we have to die, but he lived his life, that's where his life took him. But what's, here's what's beautiful, I think, about what happened, because Jesus definitely brought a certain message of love to the world, and that was part of his teaching in my limited understanding. And that teaching has continued now ever since. And I don't mean it's always perfect, or it's always great, or we're gonna like what everybody's done, but that, teaching lives on. And that's something that tells us something about that kind of dedication and devotion that's possible when we're devoted to the Dharma, to the truth of the way things are. And, uh, and I saw a, a, a poem from Stephen Levine, who died recently, who was a friend who I knew, who I sat a retreat with Stephen 30 years ago or more, long time ago. And, uh, and of course, Noah Levine used to come here to the group, Noah is Stephen's son. And, um, and Stephen Levine said, love is the natural condition of our being. Love is the natural condition of our being revealed when all else is relinquished. Right? Love is, what, is not what we become, but who we are already. And that's a great understanding because he's describing the letting go that is part of death. And when I say death, I'm talking literally, but I'm also talking about it archetypically because Dharma practice is about learning how to let go, is to, see, is to coming into harmony with the nature of reality, which is, we can't hold on to anything, ultimately. And that's paradoxically quite freeing, that we don't have to hold on to anything. And so the death, letting go, is an important way to start to understand what is it to practice. Even for, for all of us here, right, we just sat for 40 minutes Right? Where is all of, where is that 40 minutes? Anybody have it in their pocket? Anybody tell me where it is? Where it begin the past, past 40 minutes. Yeah, That's where, where it is. <laughs> it's the past 40 minutes, meaning in my interpretation, it's gone. Right? It's, it's gone. gone. And, and we're, we're not going to, we can't hold on. We can think about it a lot. We can pretend to hold on to it. We can be psychologically attached to what happened 40 minutes ago, and that happens. And we, we want to be aware of that because we don't have to be bound to it. What if there's a well, 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 you got to let me keep talking now. That's <laughs> okay. Okay, so another understanding of this 
in both Buddhism and Christianity is from Christianity is from Auden, who said, "We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die." Now, there's a beautiful Dharma teaching. I don't care what religion it comes from. Right? We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in the dread that, than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. And this is true of all of us. And it's not anything we have to blame ourselves for, but we can start to be aware of it instead of just continuing the pattern till we die. And then we'll learn some more about letting go. And I always personally find it um, quite amazing how much I can believe my identity. Right? Like, you know, this is how it is, and this is who I am, and this is how it's supposed to be, or this is how it has to be. And it's just, and, and what's always amazing is, it's just not true. And, you know, I don't, here, here I'm trying to come up with a personal example now a little bit, but, um, you know, I, I think I said this last week, but I'll say it again. So my wife went and sat for a month on the month-long retreat. And she was gone, and she was gone for, she left for a few days, and then I was, and I was unhappy. I was like, well, what the hell is she doing going without me? And I was jealous. I wanted to go sit for a month. And, and then after about three or four days, it was like, oh, this is great. Like, I, I'm alone. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. It's quiet here. I don't have to relate to anybody. And I really started to enjoy being alone. And I had a good time being alone. And then things change. And then it got closer and closer to when I thought she would be coming home. And I was started missing her again. And it was like, okay, you can come home now. And, and, uh, and then she called me to, to break silence from the retreat. Oh, excuse me, I'm having body dukkha, which I was having last week, but it's better. I couldn't sit cross-legged last week. Um, and and uh, so she called to, you know, say hi and, you know, tell me a little how it went, how the retreat was. And, and then it was like, well, wait. And, and, oh, and she said, I'm coming home on Friday. And I said, wait, I thought you were coming home on Saturday. She said, no, I'm coming. I said, I have plans for Friday. <laughs> I have to cancel plans now, which I did. <laughs> but it's, but it's. Is I'm pointing at something about the letting go, because we all think reality has to be some way. And it's nice when it goes our way, but guess what? It won't, because that's how reality is, bigger than any one of us. And so starting to get a little more comfortable with the way things are, with letting go, with staying present in body, heart, and mind, even when we don't like what's happening, is amazingly freeing. 
<coughs> and so part of what um, uh, we start to let go of, and that is archetypal in the death and resurrection, is we let go of life and we discover new life or different life or a new possibility. And that's really important or helpful because, <clears throat> because um, Norman Cousins said, he said, death is not the greatest loss in life. Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. And this is a beautiful understanding of why practice is so helpful. That as we sit here, you know, or sit at home 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever it might be, we start to learn how to be with what's here and, and to um, not lose touch with the aliveness that's here, even when the aliveness is unhappy. Because we're all going to be unhappy. That's, that's part of reality. It goes up and down. We were talking about what balance looks like in Buddhism. It looks like this, right? It's not like this. No, it's like this, and we learn to get more comfortable with the ups and downs of life rather than think it's all got to be like this and then we'll be okay. And really, people don't even want it like this. They want it like that, right? That's very American, right? Maybe very male, I don't know. You know. <clears throat> and so there's this... Um, uh, there's a beautiful teaching from uh, Bhante Gunaratna, who's, who, writ, who wrote very famous books on mindfulness. And he wrote this book called Buddhist Reflections on Death, which I've liked for many years and I've read for many years and used in teaching, especially around death. But there's one piece here that, that you, you don't often hear in Buddhism. And remember, we've been talking about the, the three characteristics here. We've been talking about uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta. We've been talking about change or impermanence, and then suffering or difficulty. And then we're going to talk more about not-self, but I haven't gotten there yet in the three characteristics. But, um, but we've talked a lot, we talked a lot about anicca, about change, about nothing stays the same. And one of the things that uh, Bhante Gunaratna talked about is he says, there is another law of understanding which helps to understand in the understanding of death. There's another law of understanding which helps in the understanding of death. It is the law of becoming, or bhava, which is a corollary to the law of change, or anicca. Becoming is also one of the factors in the scheme of dependent origination. Another Buddhist list, good list. According um, to Buddhism, the law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work. The law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work and applies to everything. While the law of change states that nothing is permanent but is ever-changing, the law of becoming states 
everything is always in the process of changing into something else. Everything is always in the process of changing into something else. However short or long the process may be. Briefly put, the law of becoming is this. Nothing is, but is becoming. Nothing is, but is becoming. A ceaseless becoming is the feature of all things. A ceaseless becoming is the feature of all things. <clears throat> and so, part of what's pointed at, at the, the, I believe, what is pointed at in this holiday of Easter and the change that happens even at the literal death, but the metaphorical death that we can't hold on to everything, that everything dies, which is things start to become something else. And part of our practice is learning how to be with what's difficult. And this is where the dukkha part, the suffering part, the uncomfortable part, the dis-ease part of life that I've been talking about with the three characteristics uh, comes into play. <clears throat> is because the paradox is it's not by getting rid of it or getting beyond it or denying something that freedom comes. Freedom comes through the difficulty, through the dis-ease, through the suffering. And the freedom that comes there is not the freedom that we usually think of where everything is just rosy and nice. No, it's, it's the maturation of the human consciousness to another level of freedom that the Buddha pointed at in his teaching and in his life. And remember, and here I'll add a Buddhist story that comes to me about Buddha, was that he was practicing, right? I always like to add, he practiced in, he was a, a, a forgetting the word, I'm waiting, I'll come in a second. Uh, he loved pre pleasure. He was a hedonist for many years. Serious hedonist, right? Can for many years. What is the source of this statement? What's that? What is the authentic source of this particular statement? The Buddhist teachings. The Buddhist teachings. The Pali Canon. The, the, the scriptures. Yeah, the Buddhist scriptures. At he, what stage of life? Uh, when he was a young man. Okay, let me finish. So, and he, so he was very hedonistic. He had a lot of, he had a lot of fun, and he enjoyed himself. But he wasn't satisfied. There was still something uncomfortable, something dissatisfied for him in his life, and so he became an ascetic. And so then he he switched from hedonism to asceticism, and he and then he was said to be living on one grain of rice a day. That's how, you know, and that's, that's serious asceticism. And he almost died, and he was going to die. And he realizes at some point that this isn't bringing him what he wants, and he actually has to respond more intelligently, more maturely, more skillfully to life itself, because life was the doorway to freedom. And so he starts, and, and this is symbolized 
in the Buddhist teaching by a young woman who comes and offers him some um, rice milk. And he takes it, and the other ascetics thinks, he's, thinks that he's horrible for doing that because he's not being an ascetic anymore. But he drinks it, and it's also symbolic of the nurturance of the feminine that allows awakening to happen, the kindness, the care, the warmth, the love that is part of what it takes for awakening to happen. And so, and so this is another example of the becoming that can happen by going through the difficulty and staying present, staying awake, and staying kind to oneself when one is having difficulties. Because many of us can be very hard on ourselves or, or judgmental of ourselves or think that we've been doing it too long or having a hard time for too long rather than being kind and keep waking up through the hard time rather than getting rid of the hard time. And I'll, I'll do the last quote and, and then we'll see what you have to say about what I've been saying. Even though there's a lot I didn't read. Oh, yeah, so I have a lot of good stuff here. <laughs> uh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I'm going to read this poem, a different one. This is called Sweet Darkness. It's from David White. Um, he says... And it's a, he said somewhere it's an Easter poem, which is part of the reason why I looked it up. Yeah, Sweet Darkness was written in, def, in defiant praise of a difficult time of not knowing. A letter of, uh, a letter of invitation to embrace darkness as another horizon perhaps the only horizon out of which a truly new revelation can emerge. The only horizon out of which a truly new revelation can emerge. And so Sweet Darkness, writes David White, he says, when your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not, you are not beyond love. There you can be sure you're not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world, you must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. David White. So, your thoughts, ideas, reactions, like, not like, 
about Easter, archetypal holidays, letting go. Well, well, well. Now you got to wait because other people are going to get to speak. Okay, come, come, come and do your one question. Oh, okay. But make it brief. Okay, thank you. No, just... No, no. But I wanted to appreciate the point you read. Wait, wait, you've got to turn the microphone towards you. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, pull it down. There you go. And what's the question? The question was, prior to just a straight question, this poem you read towards the end of your discourse, it was beautiful. And what could have been the source of that poem? Uh, because I couldn't hear it clearly, the source of the poem. This poem. About the darkness and uh, like, yeah. yeah, how if your vision gets tired, then things like that. Yeah, it's a nice poem. Yeah. Who wrote it? David White. Oh, okay, thank you. So, and I believe he's Irish or British, I'm not sure. Welsh. It, Welsh. Okay, great. Yeah. So, okay. I have a question. Uh, is there any original uh, thought uh, by Buddha on that change? Like you said, he had a law of change, something? Yeah. So, if you have a, with the source, with the original source, if you want to impart something on Buddha's thought on change, change. Change? Anicca is the word, Pali word from the scriptures. Anicca is the language the Buddha taught in. Anicca is impermanence, or it can be translated as change. And he talked about change and the understanding of change as key to waking up. And, and being aware that all of us are changing even right now as we sit here and every day we change. We aren't actually the person we were yesterday. We have some pieces of the person we were, but every day it's a new person, just like your body is changing and your heart is changing and your mind is changing. And so change is part of the reality. So now I want you like- No, no, you only got one, one question. No, I said one, one. Sorry, no, I didn't. You're good, you're, you're good at fighting for those questions. I appreciate that. Okay, who else? Please. So, um, and, and this is really quick. I've been reading Tanisra's book, um, uh, Time to Stand Up, and in it she has just a beautiful retelling of the whole Buddhist story. And I learned that the woman who gave the Buddha the the rice milk. Her name was Sujata, and I, I didn't even know she had a name in the stories I've heard, so I just wanted to <laughs> test that on. Okay, Sujata. And Tanisara will be here teaching with me sometime. I can't remember. We set it on the calendar. I'd have to look at the calendar, but it'll be sometime May or June. Go ahead. And just one thing, people, if you've never done this, said, made a comment or question, don't be shy. Or be shy and do it anyways. Either way, go ahead. Pardon? Let us know who you are. Hi, I'm Patricia. Um, Eugene, you said that we are changing all the time. Yeah. And yet, sometimes I feel like a seven-year-old 
you know, there are moments like I'm seven or uh-huh. I'm 14. Right. Or sure. I think that we still have this, you know, like we still have the embryo in us and we still have, like, even maybe before we were born. I don't know, maybe that's a far-fetched thing, but uh-huh. um, I just I think it's kind of amazing, actually, that we can hold all these parts of ourselves and still be changing even further. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure I have a question, but maybe you can say something about... The seven-year-old? <laughs> no, 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 because you're saying something that I think is really valid and important, is sometimes we see these whole parts of ourselves come and, and all of a sudden they're there, the seven-year-old, the ten-year-old, the twelve-year-old, the twenty-year-old, whatever it might be, and, and, that's, and then we think that's real, or it didn't change. Well, it can be so palpable. Yeah, definitely can be palpable. But what's palpable and what's knowing the palpableness is not the same as when we were actually seven. And that's what's tricky, is how to stay very present and awake with our experience, even as it's, even as it's similar, it's not actually the same. And that's part of the paradox, because we want it to be like totally different. Right? We don't want it to be close and then, oh, I think this is me. Because that's the habit of mind. Is we think, oh yeah, this is me from when I was seven. And it may have some resonance, but it's not you when you were seven. Does that make sense? Or? Not exactly. No? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Meaning good because it's paradoxical. I mean, of course, I have experiences of myself, and I think, oh, this is just like when I w- last year I used to do this all the time. But actually, it's it's a resonance. It's not actually last year. The right nowness is here right now. Somebody, I think it was Suzuki Roshi, said when he said, he said when I realized. When I really realized no moment could be repeated, I was free. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I just have a a little comment that reminds me of a Mark Twain saying where he said, "Um, time does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) What, 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 I missed it. Say that again, let me hear it. Mark Twain said it, and I'm just repeating Mark Twain. He said, time does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> time does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Okay. <laughs> okay, we have... Hi, I'm Patrick. Patrick has been very helpful here in doing a lot of work for SFI, so I just want to appreciate that. If I'd known you were going to embarrass me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but who's embarrassed? (laughs) I can be here now with my embarrassment. (laughs) Beautiful. That's freedom. That's my question, almost. Okay. Um, Trying to be here now, uh-huh. with whatever is 
becoming and letting go of stories about the past yeah. and stories about the right. future. Yeah. Why doesn't that lead to um, problems dealing with life because it seems like it would let go of abstraction, it would let go of planning, because planning is making up stories about the future. Yeah, but nobody said making up stories about the future is bad. Right? That's one of the paradoxes. You could make up a lot of stories about the future, see which ones you want to live. Having choice is part of what the Dharma brings. Right? And it means even the choice to see, oh, I can't live certain things because of uh, certain um, uh, limitations or certain societal problems or certain whatever it might be. But then you, then you can respond to the problems rather than just believe, oh, I can't do it. Because w life's not per perfect as far as I can tell. And I would be happy to have a perfect life, but it, it doesn't seem to be that way. But the ability to, have, to bring our heart and mind and our body to, to respond to reality, that seems very skillful to me. So you're saying that there is more to life than being in the moment? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> there, there is, everything is in the moment. Remember what I started with? Remember when I said why I give context? Because, you know, because all of reality is right here on a certain level. And so then it gets, you know, it is, I could, of course I could agree with you, yeah, there's more to life than just being in the moment. There's planning, or if some people, like um, one of my students um, uh, had a baby, so I got a picture today of the, the woman and her husband and the brand new baby. And it was like, that's, they, they you know, they planned that, and that happened, and that's pretty wild that we can even do anything like that. So, and of course, all of reality is made up, right? Somebody made this church. Somebody thought of this church. And then it got built. And now it's been here for whatever, 50 years or 75 years. I mean, that's totally wild. Or, or Spirit Rock here. Spirit Rock's a good example, right? I remember when there was no Spirit Rock. I remember when people had the idea, oh, could we have a center here? Could we build a place like IMS, which is the East Coast Center that we're part of? And, and then Spirit Rock got built. And, so, and then now, this new community meditation hall's been built and it's almost open. It's totally beautiful. People made that up, right? That was, that's not a bad thing, but so, Partly, you're asking about creativity and the Dharma. That's true. That's, and, that's really true. It's a big part of what I'm asking about. Well, but I find being in the now sometimes leads me to drifting. But it can. And, and so you want to pay attention. Why are you drifting? What's actually happening now that you're drifting? 
And that's, you know, and again, and one of the things I like about Utejaniya, Saida Utejaniya, is he's very keen on understanding. And he's, he's like a no-bullshit kind of dharma teacher in the sense he says, oh, you practice so you understand reality. And then you can respond skillfully. Sure, thank you. I think we're gonna stop with that. Yeah. So let's sit for a moment before we end. And just be aware of whatever's here right now. with no judgment. And appreciating that we've had some time and space and teachings to be here and to investigate Easter, to celebrate Easter and to see the relationship between Easter and Buddhism. And may the goodness or blessings of our time together be for our benefit, for the benefit of one another, and for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings discover the sweet darkness that goes from suffering to the end of suffering. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.